So we are in a series of messages that is looking at the barriers that exist that prevent people from believing in Jesus. And today we're going to talk about the dark history of the church. And this one hasn't been and, and is not easy for me. Uh, I've wondered a lot this past week about what I was going to talk about, how I was going to talk about it, the outcomes I was hoping for from a message like this. And it, it's not it's not for a lack of material. Like you could do a quick Google search and gather a lot of data fairly quickly on the checkered past of the church. And I'm not even talking about ancient history here. I'm talking about the past, like like last week, the past and the present. And it, and it sucks. Like I am, I am a Christian and a pastor. Imagine trying to tell someone you're either one of those words these days, uh, let alone put both of them together. The, the word Christian uh, often has uh, a bad meaning for people, and maybe over the years it's even lost some of its meaning to the point where there is no meaning attached to the word either. And and the word pastor, ugh, like I, I, as, as a millennial who, who interacts a lot with, with, with the next generations, the idea of pastor is not something I'm always very proud to identify with. Like like recently, my, my six-year-old son was, was telling somebody that his dad is a pastor and, and I was there. And when I heard that, one of the one of the first feelings I had was, was actually honestly embarrassment. Am I am I allowed? To, am I allowed to feel that? Like it, it, to many in, in an age group that I so care about. It's like Jesse, you're white, you're a man, and you're a leader in the church. It's like, look, that is the combination of conditions that will get you canceled. Like what, what, well, you're part of the problem in this whole topic. Like what makes you a credible voice to, 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 to analyze any of this? And you know what? I sort of agree, actually. Since I've been in ministry, I, d- I did the math on this and it was, it was a bit sobering to think about. Um, there have been eight, eight other pastors or Christian leaders that I have personally looked up to, admired, learned from, publicly thanked, people that I have trusted, that have been exposed, have faced criminal charges, who have been rightly removed from their positions because of things that they have done that have not aligned with the beliefs that we share and also have caused serious harm to other people. Damage has been done, credibility has been lost, both with me and from people I sit across from who are trying to figure out their relationship to the church post-pandemic. And those are just eight leaders I've personally looked up to. Like I cringe to think about uh, the math if I were to include all the other emails that I've been sent, the, the text threads that I have going, the personal stories shared with me, what the number would be. And you don't even need to be a pastor either to to feel the tension that exists between belief in Jesus and love for the church. Like, like try going to get a haircut and and respond to a question from the person holding the scissors. A question like, hey, uh, what are you going to do this weekend? Well, what are you going to do this weekend? Uh, It's like, uh, I'm going to go camping. I'm going to hit the pool. I'm going to play disc golf. Uh, How fast would we share? that part of our weekend will include an experience of worship in a church on Sunday. So if you feel that tension, if that's you, as much as it's awkward to admit that it's honestly me as well, I think it's because I found myself asking this question. Have I lost confidence that the church is where people can find the real 
Jesus. This is where, if you are a Christian, we run into that tension. Because after all, if being a Christian is about putting our, our and, and entrusting, entrusting our lives to the person and the work of Jesus, to what he has said, to what he has done, then we've got some problems here. Look at some of what Jesus does say about his church. Just a quick few things from scripture. See Matthew 16, for example, this phrase, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look to Ephesians 5, for example, where we have this teaching about the relationship between wives and husbands. And in this, we are told by way of illustration that Jesus is the head of the church, that Jesus loves the church, that Jesus gave himself up for the church, that Jesus wants the church to be holy, that he wants the church to be set apart from the world, that Jesus nourishes the church, that Jesus cherishes the church, that the church is like his body and his followers are members of that body that Jesus is deeply committed to and united with the church. These are some of the things that we find. So, so to be consistent with Jesus' vision for the church, this can't be a message that works to, to blow up and to throw out the church. So I want to be clear what, what I mean before we go too far when I use the word ch church throughout this message. This word from the original language in the Bible comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering or assembly of people. So very simply, the church is people. So it's not primarily a building, it's not primarily a nonprofit organization, it's not primarily an institution. It's an assembly of a certain type of people. Those who have come to new life because of their relationship with Jesus. This means that there's one church across time and across space, but there are also specific collections of those people who are anchored in specific communities, like Central Heights Church, which meets in a building on Sundays and many other times at 1661 McCallum Road, Abbotsford, BC, Canada. But it is also a community that is sent out to, to, to live and to work and to play and to learn as the church, in homes, job sites, schools, in the Fraser Valley and beyond. So knowing some of this background, today I, I want to offer some reflections on Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. It's a bit of a different type of message because we're going to look all throughout what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, as our King, describes what life is like as we live under his rule and his reign in his kingdom now, in anticipation of this kingdom arriving in its fullness when Jesus returns. It's these three chapters that I think paint a, a, a proper picture of what life as the church ought to be like. And one of the things I, I'm holding on to and I want us to hold on to throughout this discussion, as rough as and uncomfortable as it might get at times, is a key phrase from Jesus' teaching here. Right in the middle of these three chapters, there's an instruction on prayer. And right in the middle of this instruction on prayer, there's an important phrase. And I believe that what Jesus teaches us to pray shows us what God wants us to have. Look at this phrase in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So if this prayer... The Lord's Prayer, in these, in these verses, is, a, is sort of a summary 
of what Christianity is about, what God desires for his people, what the, what the community of people living in God's kingdom is to be about, what the church is to be about, then the church ought to, by definition, be an incredible expression of God's life-giving rule in this world right now. I love how another pastor puts it, nothing compares to the church. No business, no investment, no enterprise, no activity. It's the heart of God's plan, and Christians believe it is the hope of the world. As such, it is our conviction that it's the most dynamic, active, vibrant, forceful project on the planet. It is the one thing we will give our lives to that will live on long after we are gone. And not just for a generation or two, but for all of eternity. But that may not be what you have experienced. What has the world experienced of the church? What have you experienced of the church? And this is where I want to take a few minutes to do a bit of Christian self-reflection, maybe, of, on, on where we are if we were to understand some of why the dark history of the church is a real problem, and a real problem for many. So a disclaimer, though, let me say briefly, before I get into some of these things, I know some of what the church has been accused of is framed with, with exaggerated language, offensive language even. But I also believe that, that the church has been and currently is somewhat good at covering things up and, and downplaying how people have both felt and what people have experienced. So having said that, here's some of what we could talk about on the dark side of things. We, we, we've got things that the church has done to those outside the church. You've got things like the Crusades, the Inquisition, colonization, slavery. You've got things that the church has done to itself from within. Things like the Reformation, where you've got these wars of religion. You've got the, the killing, the, the drowning, the burning of, of heretics, of, of witches, of people who just believed the wrong thing. Then you've got things that we're guilty of by association. Like right now, the, the Mormon church has been painted in a really negative light with shows like Netflix's Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, or what you can find on Disney Plus, Under the Banner of Heaven. And of course, we've also got the ongoing and the horrible discoveries connected to the residential schools right here in our own country that, that are primarily linked to the Catholic church's involvement. But to those who don't really know church history or the characteristics of the specific church that we believe Jesus is building, we're no different than these other traditions. We're part of this mess. Like read the comments on, on entertainment reviews on shows like these or, or read the comments on when, when news articles come out about stuff like this and you'll find quite quickly the belief that the church is an institution that needs to go in order for society to make progress. It's like, what are these places doing? Make them pay taxes and go extinct along with their myths. And here's where I wrestle though, because regardless of how much is accurate or justified in some of these perceptions and in, in the historical record, there are things that the church has done that have painted it in a harmful light. And there are also things that the church has not done that have painted it in an irrelevant and damaging light. That's why, the, that's why the past, some of these things that we didn't even really go into, is also played out in the present. 
Here are just a few sound bites from people that I'm, I'm connected to, things that I just gathered up because I, I, know, I know them and they post these things all the time. You've probably seen stuff like this. You want a perfect church? Empty it. How about this one? The solution is to get white evangelicals to self-reflect and realize how homophobic, racist, and misogynistic they are. Or this one, the church is a place where pedophiles are protected. Pastors are too silent about fill in the blank. Pastors are too loud about fill in the blank. The church is a place where the Bible is weaponized to marginalize people. Or this one, my pain is not a joke. This is why I left the faith. I love God more when I don't have to deal with his children. Most of us aren't leaving because we want to sin more. We're leaving because we can no longer reconcile this institution with the teachings of Jesus. So these are just some of the reasons why, for many people, the greatest proof that God doesn't exist is the behavior of Christians themselves. In other words, the way we live and act is, is solid proof for some that what we believe is not true. And this makes sense to me because many people's ideas of Christ are shaped by their experience of Christians. All of these things that we've just kind of breezed past and a lot, of the, a lot of the actual experiences connected to these accusations, it doesn't look like God's kingdom coming and his will being done here and now the way it happens in heaven. I think a lot of it comes back to a, a failure to obey Jesus in relationships with others. Just a few examples we could find from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' larger teaching across these chapters. Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Or Matthew 7, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. How do things like these reconcile? With the dark history of the church? Why do these things happen when this is where Jesus himself began? So here's, here's what I originally thought I should do in this message. I thought, you know what, I should take a, a list of, of all these dark things and place it next to a list of all the good things that the church has done. What I could do would be to list all the pros and weigh them against the cons and say, see, the good outweighs the bad. So come to Jesus. That's, that's where I originally thought I should do. I thought I could point out how Christianity has deeply impacted the, the whole world for the better. I could point to how the church has elevated the value of human life. I could point to how the church has played an instrumental role in, in condemning and outlawing slavery. I could point to the, the founding of hospitals, how the, how the church freed and dignified women. I could point to how the church played an instrumental role in, in institutionalizing liberty and justice. I could point to how Christian suppositions spurred on scientific discoveries and, and took arts and, and literature to new levels. I could point to how, if you look closely at history, most of the good things about Western civilization find their roots in Christianity. I could conclude, as, as one historian comments, that throughout the history of the West, Christianity has been at the heart of the civilization and inspires, even when it's allowed itself to be captured or deformed by it. I could also point to people's individual lives being radically transformed. I could do all of that, but, but even as helpful as that might be, and, and as there is a place for that, I couldn't help but wondering something that was just gnawing away at me. Would that be enough for you? 
Would that be enough for the person that you, that you know is right now not able to believe in Jesus because of the dark history of the church? Would it be enough to see that Christianity, for all of its negative components and shortcomings and damage done, has still been a net positive on the planet? Think about it. It might be helpful, but would it be enough? And, and for me, I just, I just don't think it would be enough. So in light of all this, I, I, wanna, I want to both lament and admit the reality of the darkness in the church and instead make two arguments. First, that the dark history of the church is not a good enough reason to reject Jesus. And second, the dark history of the church does not align with Jesus' bright vision for the church. And so I want to take these two arguments and I, and I want to address three different types of people. You're probably in one of these groups. First, I, I want to talk to those fully outside the church. Second, I want to talk to those with, with one foot out the door, hanging on by a thread to the church. And thirdly, I want to talk to those fully inside the church. So first, to those fully outside, maybe you're exploring, maybe you're not. Here's an encouragement. Could I, could I encourage you to see that the dark history of the church is not a good enough reason to reject Jesus? I, like, I get, I get the, the red flags that, that you see that create justified caution. But I, and I understand why this would make sense. It's just, to me, it's not a complete response or an adequate one. So here's what might help you get there. Three things. First, the Bible explains why there would be darkness in the church, why there is darkness in the church. And maybe four bullet points underneath this that, that, that I wish we could take more time in. First, from a biblical worldview, God has an enemy in the spiritual realm. Satan, who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy, who plants the bad amidst the good God is planting. Second, there, there, are, there are and there have been false teachers, people who have, in, in the name of Jesus, misrepresented God and his word and influenced others to believe and live in ways that are out of sync with Jesus. Another bullet point would be that there are and there have been false disciples, so these are people who have grabbed onto the label of Christianity, say they are Christians, but who don't really know Jesus. And Jesus makes this clear in the same Sermon on the Mount that, that, that we could look at and, and read in its entirety. Matthew 7, for example, Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Also, not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you've got an enemy in the spiritual realm. You've got false teachers. You've got false disciples. But a fourth thing you also have from a biblical worldview is you have true disciples who make real mistakes. And the scary part about this group is that I'm a part of it. And you could be too, which is why a second big piece that might help you is that is to realize that right belief doesn't always lead to right 
behavior. James 2 shows us this, that, that, that even the demons believe in God, and as they shudder in that belief, they still actively oppose him. 2 Timothy 3 talks about the, what the, the role of Scripture plays in the church and how it's about teaching and, and rebuking and correcting. Or in Revelation uh, chapter 2 and 3 where Jesus has these messages for the churches, they're, they're messages of, of, of blessing, yes, but also, as Jesus says, look, I know, I see, I know what you're up to. There are also words of warning. Words calling his church, his people, to repent. So if all of these things are true, look, you need correction and training and righteousness. That's why you've got the word. And Jesus comes and he, and he tells these certain messages of, of warning to repentance. What that tells us is, even from the very start, the church was going to be full of real people. True disciples, even, who would make real mistakes because right belief doesn't always lead to right behavior. And a third thing I would say, and, and, and please hear this, that Christianity is about faith in Christ, not faith in Christians. In the end, you know, the question will be, if all of this is true, the question will be for you, not, not what did other people do with Jesus, the question is going to be, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with his claims? What did you do with his person and with his work? All these things that he has done for you, what did you do? Not what, not what did other people do, not what did the church do. What did you do? I think it's so helpful, these words from one professor. There were 10 or more messianic movements in Palestine that failed within about 100 years before and after Christ. Unlike the leaders of these and other religious movements, Jesus took no political figure, or he was no political figure. He had no connection with Herod or the Sanhedrin, some of the ruling bodies at the time. He took no political action. His disciples were relatively uneducated. Yet, he changed millions more than Alexander the Great, Muhammad, and Napoleon put together. It all happened because his message and his physical resurrection transformed his early followers who did not pick up the sword to defend themselves even during brutal persecutions. But rather, they went about spreading his love and the need for his forgiveness by word and deed to all, regardless of race, sex, ethnicity, poverty, or wealth. They did so because they believed with all their heart, soul, and might the words of Jesus. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. From John 14, 6. They echoed the conviction of Peter's words spoken to his fellow Jews. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. From Acts 4.12. They took this stance because they knew that Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, another ruler of the time, did in fact physically and empirically rise from the dead. They knew that it was not their faith that validated Christ's resurrection, but that it was his physical resurrection that validated their faith. The question is going to be, what did you do with the evidence and the claims of Jesus? Look, if, if you're outside the church, like there are probably good reasons for that. I'm sorry for that. H help us to understand. And don't let us, don't let us be the reason that you miss Jesus. Consider him. Consider what he said. Consider what he's done. I don't want you to reject him based on a distorted or dark picture that the church has given you.
Second group of people I want to address, to those, to those of you who have got one foot out the door right now, two things I, I want to encourage you in, and they may not initially sound like encouragements, but, but I mean them to be encouragements. First, I believe that not all of what you think is bad about the church is actually bad. Could God be inviting you to rethink your anger? Like, here's a confession. I'm, I'm far more concerned with Jesus' critique of the church than yours, actually. Because not all of what is seen as dark actually is from Jesus' perspective. See, because, like, look, I know so many people that have got one foot out the door because of how the church is holding to its convictions about Scripture. Things that you wish the church would move past and adapt with where society is and, and just get with the times and stop being so tone deaf. But look, Jesus seems to believe that the church will face pressure for his sake. And Jesus seems to be convinced that moving away from his words is not a good thing. Again, we're in this Sermon on the Mount, just a few things from Matthew 5. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, so the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now listen to this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Look, are, are some of the things that are driving you away from the church, things that deep down you're actually disagreeing with God about, not necessarily his people, but you're placing your anger towards the church instead of towards God who's, who's said things that you struggle with. Could God, could God be inviting you to rethink your anger, to rethink what you think is, is bad and evaluate it with what he thinks is good? A second in encouragement for you, if you're still tracking with me and you've got one foot out the door, some of what you've experienced from the church is really bad. Is really bad. So my question would be, could God be inviting you to forgive the church and let him deal with the wrongdoing? I hesitate to even ask that question, but, but look, I, in this same Sermon on the Mount, I draw your attention to Matthew 6, part of this prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, Jesus says, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is what I'd be curious about if, if, if you and I, if, if you were in this situation, if we were to have a chat outside of this, this space, could God be inviting you to forgive the church? Notice, notice I didn't say, could God be inviting you to keep attending a Sunday service on the weekend? What I'm wondering about is if there's something else deeper below the surface, because you could keep showing up, but not deal with what is real. So here's my suggestion. In prayer, use names. 
Use names. Like I know the word church kind of rolls off our tongues a bit easier when, when we're frustrated. Uh, like like it's easier to say church than than Pastor Jesse. Like like when I hear of oh the church never talks about whatever topic I want them to talk about. What you mean is is actually not not the, the church, but what you mean is is a, a specific small group teaching team of a few individuals at your church has decided not to talk about what you want them to talk about. See, look, my my hunch is. That, that it's actually, your problem isn't with the family of God as a whole. Your problem was with some specific people who have hurt you, who have annoyed you. Could God be inviting you to forgive a few people by name? And, and if your issue is like, look, Jesse, that's not really it. It's the system. It's the institution of this whole thing. Look, like I, another confession, I, I, I didn't, and I haven't, and I and I don't always like the church. Even right now, there are things in my heart, cynicism among them, that that left unchecked will take me to some dark places. But but I've come to love the church, even though even though it's going to let me down again. I'm personally okay. Look, I'm personally okay if if you want some space for a time, but please use that space. Stay connected to somebody you trust. Ask your questions. Don't abandon scripture. Go to the word. Talk to Jesus. Pray about everything. If, you, if, you've, if you've got one foot out the door, you matter to me. But, but more importantly, you're loved by God. By God himself. All throughout this, this, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to this God as our Father in heaven. You're cared for. You matter to him. A final group of people to, to talk to here is to those fully inside the church. And I, look, I, I'm, I think I'm mostly in this, in this cluster. I, I'm not sure if we are doing a great job interacting with those who think and talk and act or look different from us. I know for sure that I'm not in, in, in some areas more than others. Like I'm distracted, I'm selfish. I, I, I could pat myself on the back for, for saying the right things, but I don't think it's enough for me to, to sit here and, and to say some right things. I have to do something with this myself. Like Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are meant to, like salt, have this, have this, this purity and this quality that, that pushes back the, de the decay of our world. That's, that adds a God's good flavor to it. We're meant to, like, like light, reflect him into the dark places, not create more darkness. So here's my curiosity. What, what would happen if we, if, we, if we took this seriously and, and just even did one simple thing? Ask people honoring questions more often. These, these, are, these, these things are, are questions that don't cast shame or judgment or, or set up further barriers. Honoring questions are things that honestly seek to understand people, understand where they are. Because look, we can't understand where somebody is until we hear them say it. So here, here's some examples of honoring questions. For example, 
You could say something like, I'm interested. How did you arrive in that place or that position or that belief? Another thing you could ask, what, what are some sources you follow that shape what you believe? It sounds like you've given thought to blank. Could you tell me more? How does blank impact your life? What holds you back from believing? Is there a way I can support you right now? How are you inviting me to respond to what you said? I find that, I find that this simple practice of, of, of asking and, and, and of listening, like actually listening, not, not to respond, but to understand, is really helpful right now in being salt and light in the time in which we live. Like I used to be so proud of myself when people would tell me, wow, you're not like other Christians I know, or, or wow, this isn't what I thought being a Christian was about. Like I used to feel good about that, but now I'm in a place where my response internally or maybe even externally is something like, well, maybe you don't know a lot of Christians because there's a lot of people who follow Jesus better than I do. So I want you to think about something as we finish. Think of a name of a person who reminds you of Jesus. Somebody that, 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 that when you think about them, you're like, wow, they really are salt and light. Wow, they really do look like, sound like, think like Jesus. Hold, hold that name in your mind for a minute. Who is it for you? Who reminds you of Jesus? And, and as you think about that name, I want you to think about this. Does somebody have your name in their mind right now? I hope so. I hope that we can take the words and the way of Jesus seriously to, to pray for, to work towards, to desire things to happen on earth the way they happen in heaven. Imagine, imagine what that would be like.